Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be comfortable, St. Edmunds and friends of St. Edmunds. My godfather, Louis, was a six-foot-five newspaper man, kind of a gentle giant. He was not considered gentle to the newspaper industry in Detroit because he was the head of the newspaper guild and was constantly calling what became known as Detroit's annual newspaper stride. And Nancy is obviously preoccupied, as are others in the entertainment industry, uh, with the impending possible writer's strike. Let us keep the whole industry in our prayers as both justice and industry are served. Not always an easy thing to do. I mention all this because Louis loved glorious things of thee are spoken. He wasn't much of a believer, but it was his favorite hymn. 
And your deacon, who is a composer and authority on music, reminded me this morning, or actually informed me this morning, that that sturdy tune began as a movement in a string quartet by Joseph Haydn. And it became the Austrian national anthem, but after World War I, thanks to the disgrace of Kaiser Wilhelm, it was not used by the Austrians anymore, but then Adolf Hitler appropriated it as the Nazi national anthem. And Louis, that gentle giant, caller of newspaper strikes, actually enlisted in the US Army before Pearl Harbor. And he told me that one of his motives was to go to Europe and get his favorite hymn back from Hitler. And that he and the greatest generation did. So I'm John, and I'm going to be your bishop this morning, and my beloved spouse Kathy here with us live about five minutes away. And when we first moved in six years ago, we had a vision of coming often to graze in your green pastures here at St. Edmund's. But the gate of St. Gabriel Boulevard has been narrower than I thought. The shepherd's voice, it's a big diocese, calls us from San Clemente to Santa Maria, from Pacific Palisades to Needles. Yes, people of the Diocese of LA, you have got a church in Needles. Making each opportunity to be here with you, our closest neighboring parish, a precious opportunity indeed. Kathy and I know you're here from, for us if we need you, and we hope Jennifer and Anthony and Suzanne and Robert and Jonathan and all of you know that you're always in our prayers, even when we're dashing past on the way to someplace else. If you're like me, COVID has confounded and confused your medium-term memory. I actually looked up when Jennifer's installation was, I thought it was like about last Thursday, it was a year and a half ago when we gathered together to give thanks for the official start of your beloved innovative rector's new ministry. Her relationship and your relationship and the pandemic got underway at the same time. And I, were, I imagine there were times when Jennifer said to one of you, have I met you in person yet or just on Zoom? Because the thing about crisis Crisis can make things clearer or clear as mud. This is true even of the church after the crisis of Christ's crucifixion and the utterly confounding and perplexing reality of resurrection. During Lent, your own Ron and Michelle Harrington, along with the absolutely wonderful Catherine and Matt, so well known to all of you, heard the shepherd's call to join Kathy and me and about 20 others on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Now, if you've taken your pilgrimage, you know that pilgrims make that trip to Israel and Palestine for many reasons, but it's usually to see the places associated with Jesus' life in order to add a concrete dimension to your faith. Unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily add clarity as the pilgrim makes their walk around these holy sites. Is Mary, the mother of our Lord, buried 
in Jerusalem or way up in Ephesus, for your convenience, you can visit her tomb in either place. <laughs> or was her mortal body assumed into heaven, leaving nothing at all to be buried? There's a church called the Church of the Dormition that you can visit in Jerusalem if that is your present, if that's your preference. The thing about Bible facts, it depends on who you ask. It depends on what you believe. It sometimes depends on what we need. Now we're all together this Easter time, we Christians, in the clarifying light of the empty tomb. And for me at least, there is no shadow on this one. On the third day, we know from almost all of the gospel accounts the women went to where Jesus was buried. The women were the first to receive the revelation. This was clearly so well known in the Christian movement that nobody could say that it wasn't the women because believe me, if the men had wanted to take the privilege away from the women in terms of historical memory, they would have done it. But they knew they couldn't because everybody knew that Mary and Joanna and the other Mary were the first to see. It was in a borrowed grave in a quarry. It was then outside the city walls. And in the fourth century, Queen Helena, the mother of Constantine the Great, built a church there. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, sometimes the Church of the Resurrection. It's Kathy's favorite place on earth. And yet our evangelical siblings prefer to believe Maybe they need to believe that the tomb was actually at a less chaotic site nearby called the Garden Tomb because in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre there's all these icons and there's all this incense and there are all these squabbling priests and our, some of our evangelical siblings say that can't be the place where Jesus was raised. It's too messy. But the Harringtons and Kathy and our fellow pilgrims, we knelt in a little chapel that is 10 meters or so above what's understand by our, understood by archaeologists and theologians alike to be the burial place of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. About this, between secular and religious experts, there is absolute agreement that that's the spot. The spot where, according to our faith, on the third day, Jesus left the world's betrayal and sorrow and anger and agony and limitation behind and walked into the Palestinian sunshine and changed our lives and changed everything. This is our Eastertide faith. It's supposed to do a lot for us. It's supposed to free us from the fear of death. It's supposed to enable us to endure suffering for a good cause, as our reading from 1 Peter proclaims. It's supposed to enable us to endure all kinds of suffering, whether it's anxiety, depression, discouragement, chronic pain, loss of those we love. Resurrection is supposed to enable us to endure it all because we know that the ultimate power of suffering and death has been destroyed because loss always leads to new life. That is the promise of the risen Christ. This is our faith. 
But when the suffering comes, it's always hard anyway. And our faith might not feel like it's enough. Our faith in resurrection is supposed to make it easier to pour ourselves out for others. To give a little ground in a difficult political argument in order to keep a relationship with a family member or friend strong. To surrender just a little bit of privilege. To make sure that everyone God has made has got a place at the table. Here comes a hard one to give five bucks to a guy on the street whether we think he deserves it or not. Just because he asked. Just because our Lord commanded us to give to everyone who asked without condition or reservation. But when people put demands on us, it's hard. And our faith might not seem like it's enough. Now at this point in the sermon, it's a common move to turn to the words of the second chapter of the book of Acts that we heard this morning. We heard about a wonderful, wonderful thing. We heard that the church was all together in perfect agreement and everybody was praising God in four-part harmony, performing miracles, owning everything in common and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And then the preacher usually says, good people of St. Edmund's, St. Clement's, Prince of Peace, St. Swithin's, we just need to get back to that. That simple, perfect, unified faith where everybody agreed back to the clarity, back to the radical generosity of the early church. The problem, my friends, is I don't believe the Acts account even for a minute. Remember what I said about truth claims. It depends on who you ask, what you believe, and what you need. Now, the book of Acts was written late in the first century, and people were busy trying to build an institutional church because they realized that Jesus was not going to come back in their lifetime after all. This is 30 or 40 years after the events of resurrection, maybe even more, before Luke even took up his papyrus roll. Two or three generations had passed since resurrection. Back in the 50s, within the lifetime of some who knew Jesus, St. Paul was already sending letters to churches that were bickering over doctrine, they were squabbling over how to offer Holy Eucharist, that means that the clergy and the altar guilds were already feuding, they were arguing about who was in charge, who was the better preacher, and about how churches were not sending enough money back to Jerusalem to help battle a famine. This sounds familiar. This I know. This is how people really behave, and it is the exact kind of thing we contend with today in a church of 5,000 bickering sects and denominations that are always asking people to give more money. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. But these verses from Acts convey an ideal of church community. It was sort of part of the church's PR plan late in the first century. Someone writing two generations after the events wishing the unity had existed. Hearing perhaps that the unity had existed, maybe even believing that it had. 
So imagine that. All these years, we've been comparing ourselves to an ideal church that never quite existed and making ourselves feel bad because we keep coming up short, creating a factory of guilt and shame that the church has been cashing in on for 2,000 years. But it shouldn't be that hard to follow the God of love. It should be more joyful. It should be an exuberant thing to do to live in the light of resurrection. It's better by far just to, just to do the best we can each day. Most people are going through life doing the best they can with the challenges they face. Most people of faith want to glorify God and care for God's people. We know we're going to fall short of our own expectations of somebody else's expectations. That's a peril of modern life as well. We're always comparing ourselves to somebody else and coming up short so somebody can sell us something. Instead, let's just give thanks that we're going to have the gift of a new day tomorrow so we can try again to do the best we can, always keeping the eyes of our heart fixed on the reassuring light flowing from the empty tomb and our ears tuned to hear the shepherd's calming, reassuring voice. With apologies to your noble patron saint, the valiant Saint Edmund. Yesterday was the feast day of one of the great mystics of the Middle Ages, Catherine of Siena. Now we don't idealize the early church because when we do that we dehumanize it and give ourselves a standard we can't come up to. It's also wise not to idealize Catherine or any of the female saints of that time in view of the extreme trauma experienced by women in the 14th century. Catherine was her 40-year-old mother's 23rd child. When Catherine was 16, she went on a fast to keep her father from forcing her to marry her late sister's husband. And some of her first visions came from those moments when she was depriving herself of basic sustenance to be able to keep control over her own life. Visions of Christ's love and mercy came to someone who can't have helped feeling beaten down by a cruel and a prejudiced world. And Catherine wrote this. She said, God was a sea in which we are all the fish. This isn't God as a judge or a winnowing authority figure. Catherine's world had plenty of those already. This is God comforting, enveloping us, sustaining us. A God we can't evade and wouldn't want to try to evade. A God who is already everywhere we're inclined to be or anywhere we have to be because of circumstance. God there with us in church, of course, but at home, at work, school, when we're feeling lonely, abandoned, overlooked, marginalized, devalued, insulted, when we're in the unemployment line, when we're in a hospital room, weeping because someone we love is in agony. God is there everywhere. A God who enables us to say, that wherever we are, we're at home. Catherine's theology, 
God and we moving through the world together, inseparable. We being nourished by creation all the time. Reminds me of Jennifer when she was telling me the other day about the Holy Ghost kitchen here at St. Edmund's Parish. She says it's hard to have a soup kitchen on a campus where you have a nursery school. And when I was down at St. John Chrysostom in South Orange County, we had a school on campus. We couldn't do much outreach on campus to the food or the housing insecure for the same reasons. So what you do instead, you volunteers are preparing food here and then taking it over to Union Station in Pasadena. It's a wonderful ministry. And as Catherine might have, Jennifer summed it up with these words. It's a philosophy, it's a theology, it's a practical ecclesiology of taking what we have and going. That's what we'll do when we swim out of here today. Now with the diocese of which you're part, and we're deeply grateful for the resources and the inspiration St. Edmund's provides, and we pray for you each day, I promise. What we have in the diocese in six counties is plenty of real estate. We can't pick it up and go. We can think differently about what we do with it. So we pledge to build affordable housing on 25% of our mission and parish campuses, which we estimate will give four to 5,000 of our neighbors places to lay their heads while sustaining churches thanks to ground lease revenue. Ground lease to me these days is the fifth gospel. A lot of our churches have maybe a budget of 350, $375,000 a year, and if a church can get $90,000 a year of ground lease revenue, suddenly the bottom line looks a little bit less red. People stop worrying quite so much about attendance. They stop worrying quite so much about money, and they start dedicating themselves to what God's made them to do, which is glorify God and care for God's people. As anyone in church leadership knows, financial anxiety can be weary. So you build a place for people to live, and you give the treasurer a good night's sleep. Make no mistake, this comes from a place of absolutely unquenchable optimism about the future of the Episcopal Church in this region. We are committed to building it up for the sake of the saints who will inherit it because we believe that U.S. Christianity is going to be lost without our church. We have seen so many manifestations of a supremacy model for church. Small as we are, imperfect though we may be, we're a church rooted in resurrection faith, sacramental faith, while being devoted to freedom, equity, and justice for all across all barriers of race, national origin, orientation, and identification. So now we have this precious aid to be confirmed this morning. And I'm going to call them each by name in keeping with our moving hymn. I tried as best I could to talk them out of it before the service because giving yourself unreservedly to Christ is a hard thing to do. And yet they are still in their pews awaiting the moment. Joseph, Edward, Lucas, Kalen, McKenna, Jackson, 
and queen who has been waiting all these years to be confirmed so she could be confirmed with her little brother, Peter. And I single them out because they have been waiting as well to take their first communion. So this is a double day of celebration in this family, what holy patience Queen has exhibited. They're becoming fully-fledged members of an imperfect church, which nevertheless is perfectly suited to the spiritually hungry, justice-deprived times, helping us to hold the shepherd's gate wide open for all, that all people might have life and might have it abundantly, exactly as God has made them, so that they can flourish and strive and do the work that our baptismal covenant commends to us to devote every moment of our lives to glorifying God and caring for God's people. We're not going to get there in our lifetime. It will never be like the book of Acts. It was never like the book of Acts. With each of our daily steps along the road to the promised land, the great shepherd looks back and smiles and takes delight. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.